welcome to the Hannah Miller Show. And here she is, Hannah Miller. Outspokenly conservative and unashamedly Christian, this is Hannah Miller, and this is what happened this week. So we're going to talk about two stories this week. First of all, I want to bring some information. My my conversation last week about the hate crimes bill garnered a lot of questions from folks. So I want to go and I want to talk about a little about that a little bit more. I want to offer some more information and I want to clarify something. And then I'm going to wrap up the show today and spend the majority of our time talking about the Silicon Valley Bank bailout, what's happening there, why it happened, what we should be doing, and why we shouldn't be doing what we are doing. So hope that didn't confuse you too badly, but you'll understand everything that I'm saying once we get to it. So let's talk about the first thing here in South Carolina, the hate crimes bill. So first of all, I'm just going to lay out what it does. It adds five years to a sentence for those convicted of a violent crime by a unanimous decision by jury. In the words of the bill, quote, the bill creates enhanced penalties if an offense was committed against a victim who was intentionally selected in whole or in part because of the person's belief or perception regarding the victim's race, color, religion, sex, gender, national origin, sexual orientation, or physical or mental disability, end quote. So essentially there's enhanced penalties for hate crimes, all right? And it's the to the tune of five years for those convicted of a violent crime. All right, so that's the groundwork. The bottom line issue for me regarding this bill is that when we say certain classes of people deserve more justice, enhanced justice, to use the words of the bill, then other classes of people, due to whatever color, religion, gender identity, whatever it is, we are now enacting unequal justice, which is a violation of the U.S. Constitution, Amendment 14, to be exact. Furthermore, unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 2010. And unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord and false scales are not good, Proverbs 20, 23. So not only is it unconstitutional, it's unbiblical. And as a result, in my opinion, this, these kinds of bills result in further division between the classes, and I'm putting air quotes around the classes, that, that word, and is a hindrance, not a help. When we're talking about bringing unity, this is certainly not something that does that. that. One concern I have is, and this is, I, I had this conversation with my representative this week, Josiah Magnuson. So imagine a man shoots another man in a road rage incident. The victim happens to be homosexual. Before two days have gone by, the media and the keyboard warriors have discovered that six years ago, prior to to six years prior, that the man who shot the homosexual man had attended First Baptist Church of Wallyishi, South Carolina. That's a totally made up town, totally made up church, just so you know, which outspokenly preaches that marriage is between a man and a woman. How long will it take for the court of public opinion and a jury to decide that that man who is guilty of a violent crime 
is also guilty of a hate crime. Less time than you can say Oberfeld versus Hodges. Then, what do you think happens to that little First Baptist Church? It's open season on the hateful bigots. Parishioners can't handle the heat. The pastor is forced out of the ministry and the church closes its doors. If everything goes perfectly for the leftist, said church is one that's small enough to not cause much of a stir and already has some mainstream aversion, such as a rough-around-the-edges redneck pastor who once wore a Confederate flag belt in 1982 to an Ed Brown rodeo. You know what I'm talking about? That's the perfect storm for them. And so... That's one of the concerns that I have, that this would be levied against somebody who had no thoughts or feelings of homophobia, didn't even know that this man was a homosexual in this incident. But it won't take long at all for that to be tacked on because of the way that our world operates now. That aside, though, most Republicans who have supported this bill, and there's a bevy of them, unfortunately, they're making two arguments to defend their support of this bill. They're arguing that this specific bill does not allow for pastors, religious institutions, Christians, etc., to be persecuted for their religion, for their Christian beliefs regarding marriage. Okay. They claim that since the bill demands that a perpetrator be convicted of a violent crime before the hate crime punishment is tacked on, that Christians are protected from religious persecution. This is where, unfortunately, last week I confused the matter when I brought up pastors and Christian institutions, the Christian caterer, because I didn't make it extremely clear that this particular bill should not open them up for persecution, as long as they do not commit a violent crime, obviously. But here's what I was getting at last week. In my personal opinion, it opens the door for that in future legislation. And that is my concern. Which brings me to the second argument representatives, specifically Republicans, are making. And that is that this bill is not a foot in the door for further hate crimes bills, unequal justice, and class division. They're all denying that. And first, according to, you know, in, in my conversation with Josiah Magnuson, with my representative, he, he his opinion is that many are making this argument because they are just genuinely naive. They don't, um, you know, it's a very naive argument on their behalf, just genuinely not believing that this is a road that we are now embarking on. And then second, in my opinion, many are making the argument because they want this bill, but pretending to be naive about it will later help cover their tails when their constituents bring them to account. They can conveniently say, I didn't believe it would lead to this. My rebuttal to that argument, to either one of these who are saying it's not a foot in the door, is simply a reminder of a certain line of thinking. And when they say it's just regarding violent crimes, because that's what they're saying. They're saying it's just regarding violent crimes. It's not going to impact any of these other things. And it's not going to be a foot in the door for further legislation. That line of thinking is exactly the same as it's just two weeks. It's just two weeks. It's just a mask. It's just a shot. It's just your job. 
which also happens to be the same as it's just bump stocks. It's just red flag laws. It's just AR-15s. It's just a federal registration. It's just a voluntary buyback program. It's just no new guns on the market. You see, that's called incrementalism. And as soon as you grant the premise of their argument, in the case of COVID, that some government intervention is necessary. In the case of mass shootings, that some Second Amendment infringements are necessary. And in the case of hate crime bills, that some classes of people deserve extra protection due to their skin color, sexual identity, or whatever, then you have now opened the door to bill after bill after bill, incrementally building upon that premise. And my question is this, how will you refute those bills when you have already granted the premise? And in this case, the premise being that some people deserve extra protection, enhanced protection, while others do not. In the end, though, for me, this bill creates unequal justice, which is unconstitutional and unbiblical. And that is all it takes for me to consider this bill a bad bill for South Carolina. All right, moving on to the story about Silicon Valley Bank. You've probably heard about regulators closing down Silicon Valley Bank and now Signature Bank as well. I'm, I'm not going to go into all of the details. The basic story is described pretty, pretty well in, uh, in an article on Seeking Alpha, uh, Lake Street Review, uh, The Lake Street Review. Sorry, I think I, I still said that wrong. The Lake Street Review. Let me make sure I say that very clearly. That's uh, also another economic or, and market source that I like to refer to. And they also have more information on what happened, why it happened, what it means uh, in, in various articles written by their contributors. And so if you want, if you like all the nitty gritty details <laughs> on all of this kind of stuff, <laughs> uh, you have at it. Both of those are uh, fee.org has some good sources on it as well. So all of those, I am bouncing off of an article from about uh, two or three articles. Prime, my primary spine is going to be from fee.org uh, and, and Peter Jacobson, but Germinal Givan from uh, the Lake Street Review uh, did a great job talking about this with some other contributors from that digital newspaper. So, uh, and then there was a couple other articles as well that I kind of pulled from. But anyway, uh, primarily I want to say Peter Jacobson because uh, his his article is kind of the spine of what I'm talking about today. But anyway, um, essentially, and coming back to the SVB, essentially Silicon Valley Bank received a large influx of deposits as the Federal Reserve flooded the market with dollars during COVID. Okay. From there, SVB went out and bought government bonds to store that money. But then the Federal Reserve got involved and began enacting policies which resulted in interest rates going up. The problem? As interest rates rose, the bonds SVB purchased in the past declined in value. You see, bond prices and the interest rate have an inverse relationship. If rates, interest rates increase, you can earn a higher return on financial assets purchased today. When that happens... Bonds issued at a previously lower rate must sell at a discount 
to compete. Compete. So you see, bonds, bond prices, and the interest rate have an inverse relationship. So when rates rose, SVB assets, which compose largely of old, lower-rate government bonds, plummeted in value. So the key question now, though, with all of this is, what are we going to do about it? What should we do about it? What should we do when banks, big or small, start to fail? Well, <laughs> in my opinion, let them fail. I know that's a, that's a scary solution, but I want you to hear me out. Allowing banks to fail may sound extreme, but in reality, it's really the most reasonable solution. And that's what uh, Jacobson talks about in his article, how this is the most reasonable solution. And I want to make that argument. It's true. There will be some cost if the banks fail. Anytime a business fails, other investors tied financially to the company lose. That's just a fact of business and living in our fallen world. But here's the thing. People who invest in bad businesses should lose. That's the risk of investment. We all make those risks when we invest. Why should big bankers be protected from risk, but not me in my investments? That's the thing. And I'm, I'm going to talk about more on that in a moment. SVB's failures, in my opinion, give testimony to the fact that, as Peter Jacobson pointed out, it was a, quote, wealth shredder, end quote. It took depositors' perfectly good cash and converted it into now severely devalued bonds. And you see, word of caution to all of us, most of us don't even think about whether or not a bank invest wisely or foolishly. All we care about is if they're FDIC backed. If we're guaranteed up to $250,000 of our money back. Because most of us are small timers. We're not investing millions of dollars somewhere. And so, but 90% of the depositors at SVB were folks who had over $250,000. Only a small portion of their depositors and their deposits were fell within the FDIC-backed category at SVB. And so this is, should be a word of caution for all of us when we talk about putting our money in a bank. We should all be very careful especially if you're going to be talking about more money than $250,000. Banks that destroy wealth, though, back to my point, banks that destroy wealth shouldn't be allowed to continue to do so indefinitely. And when depositors and make a run on bad banks, in all honestly, honesty, they're performing a public service because they're getting a bad business out of the market. At this point, and I know, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of things that people don't want to hear. You know, people don't like that, you know, hearing there's a bank run. Uh, people, that gets a lot of people upset and we all want to say, no, stop, settle down, don't, don't put a run on that bank. But the reality is, is it's a bad business that makes bad investments and they have no business operating. 
And we would not say this about any other business out there that's a bad business and doesn't handle their clients' money fairly or rightly. At this point, a bank bailout not only would mean the taxpayers will be left holding the bag for bankers' mistakes, it would, it would mean screwing up incentives in the banking industry even more. Wait a minute. What do I mean by banking industry incentives? More on that when I come back from the break. Hey, this is Bob, the producer of this podcast. Just want to take a quick minute to let you know you can always get your questions into us. Ask us anything. Feel free to email me at bob at bobsloan.com, B-O-B at B-O-B-S-L-O-N-E.com. Or you can always find that information and more in the show notes. Now back to Hannah. Let me give you an example of what I mean when I talk about banking industry incentives. When I was in college, there was a student I knew who was actually in high school whose parents bought him a brand new Corvette as his first car at age 16. I mean, right out of the, uh, he went and, and, you know, got his little picture in front of the DMV and they took him to the car lot and let him pick whatever he wanted. And it was what he wanted. And he drove off the lot with it. Within three weeks of owning that car, he totaled that Corvette in a high speed accident. Thankfully he was, he was not injured, but his car was demolished immediately. His parents replaced that Corvette with a brand new Ford Mustang. (laughs) And before too long, that car as well was totaled. And to be honest, I lost track of his car mishaps in the ensuing years. But my point is this. Because that young man never had to face the negative consequences of his actions... He was incentivized to continue his risky behavior. Now imagine, instead of parents, it's the government that's always paying the price when I crash my car. I believe we would all exhibit behavior similar to this young man. If I don't have to bear the consequences, why drive carefully? I mean, obviously, there is still some incentive to avoid, avoid serious injury. But the point is this system lowers the cost of risky behavior and therefore lowers my incentive to be careful, to weigh all of the consequences. And economists call this a moral hazard problem. And this is the primary issue with bank bailouts. If the government sets a precedent that all bank failures will be ameliorated by using taxpayer money, banks will engage in risky behavior, which they otherwise would not. Why be cautious with depositors' money if you get a bailout no matter what? And this is true for any business and any of us. Why why be cautious? I mean, especially if we're talking about somebody else's vehicle, you know, I mean if or or, or, or money or whatever. You know, if you are an employee of a company and it doesn't matter how many times you crash the, the backhoe on the construction site, the, con- 
the company's going to replace the backhoe and you're going to be allowed to keep on keeping on keeping on with no consequences, no no pay cut, no losing your job, no nothing, then why what's to stop you? Why be cautious? There's no and it's not even yours to begin with. So what do you care? What do you care if you crash the boss's backhoe? It's not yours. He's going to pay for it, and he's not going to punish you for it either. That's the exact same attitude that that young man had that I I knew back when I was in college. And that's the exact attitude that these bankers have. And that's why SVB had all these terrible investments. And many banks do, as a matter of fact. They're going to be bailed out. But then what about other businesses that fail? Is this going to stop with banks? We already know that they're going to bail out automotive companies as well. They have. Senator Tim Scott, who's ranking member of the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs, he said this in a statement on Sunday. He said, Building a culture of government intervention does nothing to stop future institutions from relying on the government to swoop in after taking excessive risks. End quote. And... That leads to the question, what kind of precedents are we setting? And I know that it's painful, and and there's going to be a lot of us that would lose if a bank were to go under and not be bailed out. But the bigger question is, if we do, what kind of precedents are we setting? I mean, it's not so financially painful right now. I mean, it is, but, you know, we can slough it off for another day. The financial pain of bailing out this bank. But we're setting a precedent. What happens when other businesses fail that are, quote, too big to fail? Jacobson put it quite succinctly in his article When he said this, he wrote, You cannot have a healthy free market when you privatize the profits and socialize the losses. And that's what they're doing. See, all the profits that these banks, you and I were going to bear the burden of the losses, but we didn't get to reap any reward from the risk. And just so we're clear, I'm opposed to taxpayer dollars being reallocated to save the bottom line of anyone involved. I believe it's unconstitutional simply because commerce falls under the purview of Congress. And not only was this done under the executive branch, but even if Congress was involved, their role in commerce is to, quote, regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and the Indian tribes, end quote. Nowhere in the Constitution is power granted to either Congress or the executive branch to rescue bad or good businesses. But before you get worried about small depositors, the FDIC already insures up to $250,000, meaning every depositor who has less than that in their account is getting their money back already. What I think about the FDIC is a discussion for another day, but the bottom line is that right now, small depositors are not affected even without a major bailout. And for the larger depositors, business deals have risks. Putting more than a quarter of a million dollars in one institution calls for careful deliberation. 
The best way to insure your excess deposits, and by that I mean deposits over $250,000, is by opening accounts at separately chartered banks to expand your FDIC coverage. Do you understand? So, because you can put $250,000 in this bank, $250,000 in that bank, $250,000 over here, and you can spread the wealth, so to speak, and all of it would fall under FDIC coverage. And that's a better way to manage versus some of these folks who were at SVB who just dumped millions of dollars into one bank and let it sit. Look, I'll say this too. If some individual wants to come along and buy SVB or these other failing banks in an attempt to save them, have at it. Be my guest. Maybe there's an opportunity for profit there. But if the choice is between a bailout and letting them fail, it seems pretty clear to me, as Jacobson said in closing, if they can have the profits, they should have the losses as well. If they get to have the gains, they get to have the risks. And I'll say this too. Although much of what's happened at SVB is the result of terrible investments by the bankers, sometimes in life, bad things happen. Your house burns down from an electrical fire. Your wife gets a cancer diagnosis. Your business gets shut down from COVID. Those are all things that are not necessarily the consequences of bad choices. All right? They're the result of living in a fallen world. There are certain things we do to mitigate the risks of life, such as buying insurance of one kind or another. But at the end of the day, we live in a fallen world, and it is not just to ask others to unwillingly bear the burden of our losses. If a church or ministry or business wants to come alongside us and rescue us from maybe our, our house catching fire and they, they say, you know what, I want to come alongside you and help you rebuild. Or I heard that your wife got a cancer diagnosis and the medical bills are just overwhelming and you guys didn't have medical insurance. We're a ministry that comes alongside families that have this kind of thing happen and we would like to help you bear that burden. You know what, if somebody wants to come along and do that willingly, that's wonderful. But it's not the role of government to pick winners and losers amongst businesses. Lastly, I'll say this. God does not show partiality. And as his children, we should not either. Nor should we desire it, nor should we ask our government to partake in partiality. How do I know there was partiality involved with SVB? Well, first of all, do you think if this was a conservative bank with a conservative board that made big campaign donations to conservative candidates, the Biden administration would be rescuing them? Absolutely not. Do you think the government is sitting in the wings waiting to bail out your small plumbing business or your small towing business? Absolutely not, because it's happening every day and the government hasn't rescued those businesses. Obviously, partiality played a role in this bailout. So not only is it unconstitutional, it's unbiblical. So that's why I would say, let losers lose. Thank you for listening to The Hannah Miller Show. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions. If you'd like to find out more about Hannah or to schedule her for a speaking event, go to her website, thehannahmillershow.com.